You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Again, welcome. So glad you were here. I just want to pray for us one more time, uh, and then we're going to uh, talk about John chapter 4 today. We're going to look at it, talk about the implications that I believe it has on us uh, individually and as a church as we move forward together. So uh, let's pray one more time. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to come and do right now what only you can do. Uh, I thank you for every person who is here who did not get up early uh, just to come hear some a 36-year-old give his opinions on life, but um, Jesus, we just know there is more than what we can see. Um, there is um, an eternity that you have placed in our hearts, and that can only be met by you, Jesus. And so we come and we uh, submit ourselves to you today through the teaching of your word. I pray that you will drive it each of our hearts uh, in a way that is specific to each of us, and you will transform us from the inside out for our good and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen. So there is this picture of Jesus that I personally don't like. Um, because when I look at this glowy face, a Swedish version of Jesus who's doing this kind of weird thing with his hands, um, I ask myself, could this man actually help me? Like, like in my suffering and my brokenness and my weakness and my hangups, could this man be someone that I could actually run to and trust that he has the power and the grace to give me what I need the most? Because if I can be honest, as I just look at this picture, uh, the answer to that question for me is no. Like, absolutely not. Because when I look at this version of Jesus, rather than seeing a, a rescuer and a mighty warrior and a savior who is willing to meet me where I am in the mess of my life, I instead see a squeaky clean, otherworldly version of Jesus that is for me, personally, very hard to relate to. A Jesus, who rather than looking at me with grace in his eyes, seems to have disappointment over the fact that I still can't completely pull my life together. And the reason I share that with you this morning is because I truly believe that one of the reasons so few of us experience a spiritual power one of the reasons few of us experience so little healing and joy and satisfaction in our life is because we have tied our faith to a version of Jesus that looks a lot like that. A fair-skinned, blue-eyed Jesus who kind of appears to almost like float through the air with this perfect supermodel hair, right? And, 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 and he's just really kind of far removed from the everyday mud and mess of our everyday lives. And because that is true, because I believe there are so many in the religious South who have been sold on this counterfeit version of Jesus, who is weak, who is pitiful, and who is unable to help us at all, what I want to take some time to do this morning is I want to dive into John chapter 4. And fortunately, what we are going to see is a much different version of Jesus than what we see on the screen. And so if you have your Bible, look with me. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. 
I've read from the ESV for like the first seven years in our church's life or six years, um, but I like from time to time to switch it up, and so it just kind of keeps me from feeling like I know what's coming. And so NIV, I think, is also really user-friendly language. Um, and so um, if you want to look in the NIV on your Uversion app, you can do that. We also have our notes there for you uh, on the Uversion app, but if you don't have a Bible, um, we'll be sure and put the text on the screen for you. So John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 3. It says, so he, speaking of Jesus, left Judea and went back once more to Galilee, and he had to go through Samaria. Now, I just want to stop right there, and I want to point out a problem with that phrase, he had to go through Samaria. And here's the problem with it. It's not true. Jesus actually did not have to go through Samaria, and here's why. Because in the first century, the Jews despised the Samaritans so much. And by despise, I mean like literally, they would pray in the temple that God would not forgive the Samaritans of their sins. So this is like a, a different level of hate that they have for these people. But because the Jews despised the Samaritans so much, they actually, if they were going to travel from Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea, they would actually not go through Samaria, but they had a route where they would go around Samaria. So what John wants us to see here this morning is whenever he says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, this is not for geographical reasons, but rather what John wants us to see is Jesus here is being compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to this place. There is a divine appointment that God the Father has for Jesus to go into what any other Jew would have considered to be the dirtiest and most disgusting region that they could possibly imagine. And so Jesus is going to go to this place for the purpose of having a gospel conversation. And here's how it goes. This is verse 5. Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down at the well. So notice here, John does not sweep the humanity of Jesus underneath the rug. It's important that you understand this, that Jesus, though he is 100% God, he's 100% human. Which I know is a mind blower, but what that means for us is that while Jesus was on earth, he had limitations. He got sick. He got tired. Here we see he is exhausted from his journey. He says, I just need to sit down for a minute. And so he sits down at this well, and it says it was about noon. So this is the hottest part of the day. It's a part of the day where typically nobody would come to the well to draw water. However, in verse 7, it says the following, A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? For his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? So notice right out of the gate how surprised this woman is that Jesus is actually asking her for a drink of water. And the reason that she's so shocked is, is one, because Jewish men did not speak to women in public. Two, not only is this woman a woman, but she's a Samaritan woman, so she's a half-breed in the eyes of the Jews. And then three, not only is she a Samaritan woman, but as we'll talk about in just a moment, she is a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. So she's typically shunned by everybody around her, and yet here she is surprised because, please get this, this is possibly the very first time in this woman's life that a man, especially a Jewish man, treated her with some dignity. The first time in her life that she has ever probably been asked by a man for something other than a sexual favor. And so she's blown away by this. So how, how is it that you could ask me for a drink? 
And Jesus answers her, verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Verse 11, the woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to keep coming back here to draw the water. And so here is Jesus. He's sitting at the well at the hottest part of the day. And this woman, the Samaritan woman, she approaches him and Jesus looks her in the eye and he says, look, I know that you're thirsty and not just like physically thirsty, but I can tell that you have a dry, parched, cracked soul. I can tell that that you have a spiritual and an emotional and a relational thirst that you have been trying to quench through the things of the world. And therefore, I want you to know that the reason that I have come into Samaria is to right here and right now offer you the free gift of living water. Water that, if you will receive it, will become like a stream of living water that will burst forth into abundant life. This is the offer that Jesus gives to this woman. And so immediately in verse 15, she says, Sir, if that's true, if you really do have this kind of water, right, that they can satisfy the deepest part of my soul, then, then I want it. Like, like, where can I get it? So this woman, notice, like, she's all in. Like, like she's like, I want what you have. She is excited about this offer, and therefore, we would expect Jesus to be excited. We would expect in this moment for Jesus to say, praise God, cue up the praise band, like, let's baptize you, let's get you in a missional community, right? Like, like that's what we think would happen, and yet instead, Jesus decides to make this awkward. Because in verse 16, upon the woman asking Jesus for living water that he just offered her, Jesus responds by saying, okay, but first, go get your husband. To which she then responds in verse 17, "Um, well, you see, uh, what happened was, um, I actually don't have a husband. And Jesus says in verse 18, "Um, you're right. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man that you are living with now, the man that you're sleeping with, actually isn't even your husband. Now, I don't know about you, but on the surface, that seems like kind of a jerk move from Jesus. Like, if, you, if we can just be honest, like if I'm at the Waffle House this week, and, and, and I am overhearing a conversation between another man and a woman, and he's leading her down the Roman road or whatever else, and she says, I want to give my life to Jesus. And he says, okay, but first, you're going to have to go bring me your boyfriend you've been sleeping with. Like, for me, I'm just going to be like, wow, that's a little forward, you know? Like, I, that, that is a little dogmatic. That's a little pushy. It's a little bit harsh, and yet, right here in John 4, this is exactly what we see Jesus doing with this woman. Why? Because here's what you have to understand. What seems like something that is cruel on the surface is actually one of the kindest and most compassionate things that Jesus could do for this woman. Because what's going on right here is rather than Jesus settling for a surface, shallow-level relationship with this woman in a great act of courage and in love, he touches on the one thing this lady has been trying to hide. 
He touches on the one thing that has been plaguing her with guilt and with shame, the one thing that has been eating at her and robbing her of the life that she longs to experience. Because Jesus wants to send in this moment streams of living water into the depths of her being, he actually goes after the darkest places in this woman's soul. And the reason that this is so important for us to get today is, listen, it shows us a picture of the gritty, relentless love of the real Jesus. A Jesus who, rather than standing back from your sin and disappointment and just kind of, you know, shaking his finger at you and saying, no, 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 is a Jesus who runs right into the brokenness and the mess. And listen, he runs right into every single thing that you try so hard to hide because you're convinced if anybody knew about this, there's no way that they would love me. If that is where you are this morning, please know this. The places that you actually hate the most, the places that you are most ashamed of are actually the places that Jesus is attracted to today. Did you know that? Like that's what we see right here in John 4. Jesus is attracted to the places that we are most ashamed of because it is right here that he wants to set up springs of living water. This is the scandalous good news of the gospel that God, rather than leaving us in our sins and making us work our way to him, he left a perfect place in heaven and he pursued us through Jesus Christ. This is great news for us today, but the problem is, listen, because we have all been wounded, we all tend to live a life of self-protection. A life that says, because I've been hurt before and because I want to keep from being hurt again, I am going to keep God and I'm going to keep others at arm's length because if they knew the truth about me, there's no way that I know I would be accepted. Some of you have heard me tell this story before. I'm going to use it again mainly because I can. it's a way for me to talk about a wound from my past without throwing my parents or somebody else under the bus. And so um, when I was in sixth grade, the most popular brand of clothing was Tommy Hilfiger. And if you were going to be popular, therefore, you had to wear a Tommy Hilfiger. Uh, a problem with that for me is that my parents did not make very much money, and so they were not able to buy me Tommy Hill. Um, and one day, I remember my mom came to us and she said, hey, um, we still can't buy you Tommy Hilfiger, but we did find a guy on the side of the road um, who was selling a knockoff version of Tommy Hilfiger, and so we bought three shirts for you, three for your brother. And I remember being like, okay, like it looks legit. It's got the Tommy Hilfiger logo on the front of it. And so I threw it on that Monday morning. I will never forget this. I can remember exactly where I was standing and everything. um, I walked out of Mr. Jadwin's first period class and I was standing by this little couch that was kind of right up there by his, um, by his room. And I had my Tommy Hilfiger shirt on and here came uh, four of uh, some of the most popular kids in our class. And I'm thinking to myself, man, they're going to see me wearing this Tommy Hilfiger shirt. And they're going to realize, like, I'm one of them, that I fit in with these guys. So it's going to basically pluck me into the social line. I'm going to be able to sit at the cool kid table. However, when they came up, I guess they just knew right out of the gate, like, it wasn't the real deal. And so they actually, like, I remember they pulled the tag up on my shirt, and they noticed it had Belltone on it, not Tommy Hilfiger. And they began to shame me, and they began to laugh at me, and they began to mock me. And in that moment, as a sixth-grade boy who desperately just wanted to be someone who fit into the crowd, like, I was devastated. And in that moment, I received a wound that I began to try to protect myself from later in the future because what I told myself in that moment is this narrative that if what's on the inside of my shirt is not enough, then I guarantee you what's on the inside of Jared Pickney is not enough. And therefore, I'm going to have to protect myself and project myself in such a way that I can get you to like some version of me that I think that you need in order for me to be accepted. And what this did is it did not bring me more joy and happiness. It actually, throughout my life, brought me more loneliness and shame and hypocrisy. And here's just my point of sharing that. 
What you need to understand today is, listen, when you are wounded, not if you're wounded, but when you are wounded, whether it be the result of kids bullying you at school, whether it be as a result of parents who place too much of an emphasis on your performance, whether it be because of abuse or abandonment, when you are wounded, all of us will be tempted to function out of that woundedness, to believe lies about who we are, to live out a false narrative or a false self that rather than protecting us will actually enslave us. And because Jesus knows this is true, because he wants us to experience the abundant life that flows from this deep well, what he will often do, as we see here, is he will, not in cruelty, but in kindness and compassion, go after your deepest wounds, the places that you're trying so hard to protect and to hide. This is what we see happen right here with this woman. This is a woman who has been deeply wounded. I mean, this is a woman that Jesus draws up the fact that she has had five husbands. Think about that. Like, we don't know why she's had five different husbands. We don't know if it's because she was just some woman who was impossible to live with. Like, we don't know if it's because she was wildly promiscuous. We don't know if, like, her other five husbands all died. And that's why the sixth man is like, actually, I'm not going to marry you. Like, I'm totally content with dating you, but we're not going to tie the knot. I saw what happened to the other guy. It's not going to happen to me. Like, we don't know what happened. All we know is this. This is a woman who is deeply hurt. And she is lonely And she is filled with shame, which is why she's going to the well at noon because she knows there's nobody there who'll cast stones at her. And in this incredible moment, Jesus, prompted by the Holy Spirit, meets this woman in her mess. And rather than condemning her or casting stones at her, being completely aware of her sin and brokenness that she has been trying to hide, he extends to her the forgiveness and the fulfillment and the freedom that she has been searching for. So this is much different. You have to see this morning. This is much different than glowy face Jesus. This is much different than the religious, moralistic version, the Jesus Jr. that some of us have settled for, the Jesus that says, I'm only going to move towards you in love once you get your act together. Guys, some of you, maybe you still believe that this morning, and I will tell you this, there is nothing more enslaving and exhausting than that belief. The reality is you will never get your act together. You will never arrive to a place of perfection on this side of heaven. And that's really bad news for those of us who are trusting in a religious, moralistic version of Jesus. But here's the good news. If you will look to the real resurrected Jesus, if you will trust in the Jesus that we see right here in John 4, you will stumble into glory covered by the grace of God every single step of the way. And as a result you will be able to drop the chains of performing and pretending and projecting some false image of yourself and you will finally be able to receive the acceptance and the love that you are longing for. This is better news than some of you are looking like it is. I hope that you receive this this morning because some of you, listen, you were sitting here right now and you look awesome. You really do. You look great. Some mornings we don't look that great. This morning you all look really, really good. But though you look good on the outside, listen, you have believed the lie that there are some sins inside of you that are just too big for the grace of God. And therefore, you are hiding certain parts of your life from God and from others. And so you may be involved in a missional community. You may even be involved in the DNA. And you may even at times share general sins that you struggle with. 
You may say things like this, hey, brother, pray for me. I've been struggling with lust. But what you don't say is, I've actually been looking at pornography. And I actually looked at it last night. Or you'll say, hey, I, sister, I, I really struggle with materialism. I really struggle with the fear of man. And I'm like, okay, we'll pray for us. But what you won't say is that you've maxed out three credit cards in order to buy things you don't need to impress people who don't even care about you. And if that's where you are this morning, I don't want to try to guilt you or shame you, but what you need to hear is this. To be 99% known is to be unknown. To be 99% known is to be unknown. And the great tragedy of this in our day and in the church is when we refuse to be honest about how wounded and broken and sinful we are, though we may be able to press the other people around us, though we may impress them, we actually miss out on the streams of living water that, listen to me, that burst forth not through your impressiveness, but through your weakness. That burst forth not through the 99% that you and everybody else around you is okay with, but through the 1% that you are so ashamed of that you don't even want to mention it. That's the lane that the grace of God flows into your life. I think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5 and the very first words of his sermon where he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He doesn't say blessed are the perfect in spirit. He says blessed are those who know they are spiritually bankrupt before me, who have nothing to offer. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus says, I did not come for those who are healthy, but I came for those who know they are sick and in need of a physician. This is the Jesus we see right here in John chapter 4. It's a Jesus who goes into a place that no other Jew would go and he engages with a woman who is considered by culture to be cursed by God and he offers to her the free gift of eternal life. And yet, unfortunately, because this woman has been so wounded, she's still in this self-protection mode. As we read the rest of the story, and in verse 19, she actually tries to stiff-arm Jesus. Can you imagine that? Jesus comes with this offer of living water and she tries to deflect him and she does it by doing something I think all of us do in the religious south, which we try to get up on our head and use our religion and our theology to keep Jesus away from us. That's what she does right here. She actually, in verse 19, she raises up this age-old debate between the Jews and the Samaritans about where the real temple was located. But Jesus, realizing what she's doing because he cares so much about this woman's heart, because he wants to get below the surface, because he wants to extend to her living water. We don't have time to read it today, but in verse 21 and 26, he continues to extend grace. He continues to give her this offer of hope and joy and peace that she has been longing for. And as a result, at the end of chapter 4, because of Jesus' never giving up unconditional love, we see eventually this woman's life is completely transformed. And it is so transformed. I wish we had time to do a whole study on this woman's life. Not only do we see at the end of chapter 4 her evangelizing her lost Samaritan friends, but church history tells us, and I didn't know this until this past week, I started starting this woman's life. Church history tells us that this woman eventually moved to North Africa with her, with her sons, where before being martyred by Nero for preaching the gospel, she would be used by God to bring about a revival among the marginalized people who were living in that region really is an incredible story of how God just hits straight shots with crooked sticks. And though there are many things that we could pull from this text, here's the main thing that I want to get at this morning and I want you to walk away with. What we see in John chapter 4 is the reality of this. It is that the salvation and the satisfaction that you are longing for, it happens when the real you meets the real Jesus. 
The satisfaction, the salvation you were longing for happens when the real you meets the real Jesus. Or put another way, the abundant life that we were created to experience happens not when we posture ourselves as having it all together, but rather when we take off the mask and we go as we are to Jesus as he really is. Then and only then can we finally and fully experience the love and the acceptance that we were created for. That is what we see happening right here in John chapter 4. And because this is something that as pastors we want to see happening over and over and over in and through this church, uh, the big announcement that we said we wanted to share with you guys today is that after much prayer and conversation and talking with other pastors um, and other leaders that we trust all over our country, because we love this idea of a place where the real you can intersect with the real Jesus, um, we have made a decision to officially uh, change our church name from Fellowship Bible Church to The Crossing Church. And the reason that we like this name, The Crossing Church, is not only because of the story that we see in John 4, but also because of the story that we see in our city's history. Um, some of you, you may not know this, but before Paragold was ever called Paragold, do you know what people referred to it as? They called it the crossing. And, and the reason they referred to it as the crossing is because what was once this, this small, muddy, undesirable timber town eventually became a flourishing city all because of a crossing. Because two major railroad companies, the Iron Mountain Railroad and the Missouri Pacific, decided to cross their tracks literally 200 yards south of where we sit today. And as a result, the city began to grow at that time faster than any other city in Arkansas. And the vision that we have for our church as pastors is what we see, what we believe God wants to do is just as the crossing turned an unsettled swampland into a vibrant city back in the late 1800s, we truly believe that God wants to use the crossing church to do the same thing in the lives of every man, woman, and child on a spiritual level. That as we embrace what it means to live in love like Jesus, that we would be a people who meet others in the mud and the mess of their own lives, and we provide for them a space where their true self can meet the true Jesus. And as a result, like the woman we see in the text, more and more lives can be transformed, and eventually this city and the cities around us will become more and more increasingly resembling the city that is to come. Now, for some of you this morning, whenever we put that on the screen, you're like, that's not really that big of an announcement. I actually thought that was already the name of your church um, because of the name that's on our building. And so you, along with 50 other percent of the people in our city, already think that's uh, our name. Matter of fact, my father-in-law uh, just a few months ago said, how's the Crossing Church doing? You guys doing good? I don't even try to correct anybody anymore. It became so confusing. Um, and so you're like, this isn't news to me at all. For others, like this is, uh, you hear this and you get really excited about it. You're like, okay, cool. But then there may be some of you here who are like my wife, who you hate change, and you see this and you're like, man, it makes me sad. Um, it it, it kind of makes me a little bit uneasy that we're changing. And so maybe even like one of the questions that you're asking right now, for those of you especially who've been around for three, four, five, six years, is what exactly does this mean for us moving forward? And in essence, what this means is that we're just going to be even more intentional about doing what we've always been trying to do. By changing our name to the cross, and we're doing this simply because we feel like it better communicates what we've always been about, which is creating a space where the real you can meet the real Jesus. 
of being a people who are practicing the way of Jesus together in a culture of gospel plus safety plus time, a culture where you can come as you are and rather than having your sins held against you, can be hit with wave after wave after wave with God's grace, a culture where you and I can fully be known, belong, and be loved, a culture where we will meet people where they are and rather than expecting them to grow on our timing, we'll let them grow on God's timing. This is just what life in the kingdom of God looks like. And as we begin to come in uh, for a landing this morning, what I want you to know is this. No matter who you are or where you come from, this is a life that you can get it on. Some of you have religion, but you do not have a relationship with Jesus. Some of you in this room right now, you have prayed and you have given Jesus your afterlife, but you have not given him this life. And it is because, if you can be honest, though you believe Jesus can save you, you don't believe he can satisfy you. And today, Jesus wants you to know that he is not just your salvation. He is your satisfaction for today. In the midst of your depression, in the midst of your cynicism, in the midst of your yawning at the gospel, in the midst of your fighting and your bickering and your complaining and your hopelessness and your exhaustion, Jesus says to you this morning, hey, do you feel broken? Do you feel weary? Do you lack people skills? Do you feel like you're mentally unstable? Are you consumed with shame or guilt or cynicism? Do you hate yourself? Do you maybe hate the person, despise who you have become? The morning, this morning, Jesus makes an invitation to you and me, and he says this stop trying to be impressive. Stop performing. Stop pretending, stop searching for satisfaction in things that will never satisfy. And finally, for the first time, for some of you, come to him and surrender everything you have, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And a lot of this morning, I thought about how I need to end on a sermon where we're talking about all this. And here's what I actually want to do without trying to create some sort of emotional buzz. I want to invite you right now, just where you are, to close your eyes and to bow your heads. And here's how I want to end this morning. If we are going to be a kind of place where the real you can meet the real Jesus, if that's what we're going to be known for, it starts with us right now. And so maybe for some of you, whenever I was talking earlier about to be 99% known is to be unknown, to share 99% but to hold back that 1%, for some of you, like immediately the Holy Spirit put on your mind what that 1% is for you. And I don't know what it is. Maybe your spouse doesn't know what it is. Your DNA doesn't know what it is. Your friends and family may not know what it is, but you and God know what it is. Maybe for some of you, it is a past sin that you're still carrying guilt over. Maybe for some of you, it's a current sin that's causing you to walk in shame. Maybe for some of you, it's some sort of future thought that's tied to this anxiety. I don't know, don't know what it is, but for some of you, there is 1% that you are holding back. There is something that you know God is telling you to do that you're not doing or something he told you to stop doing that you continue to do. And so here's what I want to do again without asking you to stand or asking you to get up, come up here and stand and, or, and share with us and confess what's going on. 
as a way and a safe environment of helping you walk out of the darkness and into the light. If you know there's 1% that you've been holding back from God, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, and you're going to have to trust me on this. I'm going to ask you right now, if you know what that 1% is, again, something that God's asking you to do that you haven't been doing, or he tells you to stop doing that you're still doing, I'm going to ask you an act of vulnerability and courage. Would you just lift up your hand right now? Nobody looking around. Thank you. So just so you know, because I know everyone's eyes are closed, there are hands all over this room where people raise their hand. And now just where you are, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. If you raised your hand, just where you are, and this is going to require you to use your imagination that God has given you, is just cup your hands and put them in your lap, or you can hold them out in front of you. Just cup your hands, and here's what I want to encourage you to do. Whatever that 1% is that you were just now thinking about, I want you to put that and imagine that in your hands right now. For some of you, that's going to be dark, it's going to be disgusting, it's going to be gross, it's going to make you feel shame, it's going to make you feel really uh, nervous and vulnerable. But I want you to see that 1% in your hand. And here's what I want you to realize. That thing that is in your hand right now is the lane in which Christ wants to come and do a profound work of grace in your life. It is not whenever you figure your life out and get it all together. It is through that 1% that embarrasses you or you feel like is enslaving you. It is right there the grace of God wants to meet you. The truth is this morning, every single person in this room, whether they raise their hand or not, every person in this room is thirsty. Some of us are thirsty for deeper relationships. Some of us are thirsty for peace. Some of us are thirsty for purpose, for a deeper meaning in life. And I want you to know this. Please hear me. It is not a sin for you to be thirsty. The problem is not that you are thirsty. The problem is there are some of you who are looking to things other than Jesus to quench your thirst, and you know it's not working. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the Bible says that God has placed eternity in every single one of our hearts. That means there is something we long for that only God can meet. For some of you, you are looking to your kids to be more successful than you are for satisfaction. For others, you're looking to food, to sex, to money, to popularity, to comfort, to control. In the words of the prophet Jeremiah, you are forsaking the springs of living water, and instead you are trying to drink water from broken cisterns that cannot hold that water. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus stands before you and he offers to you the salvation and the satisfaction that you are longing for. He offers to quench that thirst that nothing else has been able to quench, but here's the thing, you have to let Jesus in today. Hear that. You cannot stiff-arm Jesus. As we see this woman in John 4 trying to do, you cannot be content with just the 99%. Jesus wants the 100%. He wants that 1%. And so with your hands cupped and that 1% in your hand, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Just invite Jesus right now into that space. And ask him to take that from you. And listen, this isn't a moment for you to make dumb promises to God that you cannot keep. Just ask God for help. Ask him for healing. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him for power. Ask him for strength. For some of you today, you need to ask God for salvation. If you were to die right now, you would spend eternity in hell, not because God doesn't love you, but because you have not surrendered yourself to him. You have not placed yourself under his grace. You are still trying to work your way into heaven, believing the lie that you're going to be good enough to impress God. And so maybe for some of you today, you need to ask for God to save you. 
In just a moment, I want to pray a blessing over those of you who have cupped your hands, and I really want to play a blessing over, uh, pray a blessing over those of you who should have but didn't because you're not ready. Um, but after I pray, here's what I want us to do. And again, let's just keep our eyes closed, but we're going to transition after I pray into communion. And today, as we partake of communion, as the crossing church, I want us to remember as we tear off a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice, that the reason that Jesus can, can quench our thirst is because at the cross, before Jesus died, he yelled out, I thirst. And it wasn't just a physical thirst, it was a cosmic thirst that Jesus tasted for our sin. So that we can, when we trust in him, have our spiritual and our deepest thirst satisfied. So that's what I want us to remember this morning. We have two stations in the front, two in the back. First, I want to pray for us. And as I pray, I'm going to invite the band to go ahead and come forward. And then we'll partake of communion and we'll sing again. But let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the people who stepped out, who raised their hand, and who right now have cupped hands. Father, I pray that right now that you would meet them where they are, just as we see you doing with this woman at the well. I don't know what it is that these men and women are struggling with in the room, but you know you're aware of it. This is not new to you. I pray that you will see that they that, that you know everything about them and that you are not repelled by them, but you are attracted towards their neediness and towards their brokenness and their weakness. And so I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you will do what only you can do. I pray that right now you will bring healing to people in this room who need healing. I pray that you will strengthen the hands of people who have grown weary. I pray that you will give hope to the person who is cynical. I pray that you will grant forgiveness to those who are holding on to bitterness. Father, I pray that you would save someone in this room today who just does not have a relationship with you who has continued to stiff-arm you and tried to impress others and, and you by performing and projecting some image of themselves that just is not accurate. Holy Spirit, do your work in each and every single life. And I pray for the person in the room today who maybe should have raised their hand but just was not ready to do so. Father, I don't know what that what obstacle stands in the way, but I do pray, God, that you would do whatever it takes to grant them faith and repentance and that they would draw near to you and realize that that what you say about them is more important than what anybody else says about them. I pray that now as we partake of communion that we would again remember the gospel. That Jesus, we would remember that truly in you is not just our salvation but truly our satisfaction. And as a result of that, I pray that like this woman, that God, would, would you please, I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, would you please transform the people in this church in such a way that like this woman, we cannot help but go and tell the people about you. That it would not be considered a duty or some sort of cheesy little uh, sales pyramid scheme, but that truly we would be so impacted by the gospel and what you have done for us that we will go and we would tell other people about who you are and what you've done. And I pray that as a result of that, that we would see your kingdom come and your will being done right here in this city and in our region and throughout the world, just as it is in heaven. And it's in Christ's land that we pray and ask these things. Amen.